Father, we thank you for your son's sacrifice and the great privilege we have in being able to celebrate it, being reminded of what he did for us. We hold these elements that uh, take our hearts to his body and to his blood. We pray that um, even as we consume them, Lord, that it would be a communion with you and that you would grow us in our thankfulness for what Christ has done. We pray these things in his name. Amen. Matthew 26. Twenty-six. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. If you'd like to take your Bibles and open them to Second Chronicles 25, that's where we'll be this morning. We've been in a series called Pursuing Wisdom. The title of this morning's system is title of this morning's sermon is Wisdom Needed to Finish Well, Part Three. This will be our last sermon discussing individuals or kings in particular who didn't finish well about uh, two or three weeks ago, three weeks ago, I believe. We started looking at examples of kings who started very well but finished poorly. I've left the names of the previous kings on your handout. So if you look at lesson one, these kings reveal it's hard to finish well. We've looked at Solomon. We looked at uh, Saul. We looked at Hezekiah. We looked at Asa. We looked at Joash. We looked at Uzziah. And then our last example this morning, number seven, Amaziah. Amaziah. So Second Chronicles 25. Let's go ahead and begin at verse 1. It says, Amaziah was 25 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jehoadan of Jerusalem, and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. It would be wonderful if it stopped right there, but notice this interesting phrase, yet not with a whole heart. So Amaziah is an interesting picture of half-hearted devotion. What's the problem with having half of your heart devoted to God? Yeah, you have another half that can be devoted to something else, right? And we're going to see how that plays out in Amaziah's life. I want to remind you about something from last Sunday's sermon so the following verses make sense. Amaziah's father was Joash. We studied him last week in chapter 24. He was the king who was raised in the temple. He was stolen into the temple as a baby when his uh, grandmother Athaliah was murdering all of his siblings to try to cut off the Davidic line so that the throne of Judah, or really the messianic line, would be, would be destroyed, and then the throne would be given to the house of Ahab. And so Joash grows up in the temple, starts off really well, but the priest that raised him, Jehoiada, died and then he turned from the Lord after he no longer had that godly influence. And his stepbrother, the priest who raised him's son, Zechariah, came to rebuke uh, Joash. And if you remember, Joash ended up murdering him. He murdered the, the young man that was very much a stepbrother to him. 
And Joash's people were so disgusted by his behavior that some of them, some of the Jews, came and executed Joash. Do you remember that? Well, what's the practice in the Old Testament? Because now the Amaziah has become king. He has to deal with those men that executed his father. Let me say that one more time. Amaziah's father is Joash. Now that he's become king, he has to deal with those men that executed his father. But the standard practice in the Old Testament isn't just that you execute the men, you're also going to execute who? The children, so that when they grow older and, uh, well, so you prevent them from growing older and then wanting to take vengeance. That's the practice, but go ahead and look at verse 3. It said, as soon as the royal power was firmly his, he, or Amaziah, killed his servants who had struck down the king, his father, struck down his father, Joash, but he did not put their children to death according to what is written in the law in the book of Moses, because God had forbidden this. God commanded, fathers shall not be, shall not die because of their children, nor children die because of their fathers, but each one shall die for his own sin. And so God strictly forbid that from, from uh, people doing that. And to Amaziah's credit, one of the indications of him beginning well, he trusts God to protect him and doesn't execute the children of the men that murdered his father. And next he wants to begin assembling this army. Look at verse 5. It says, Amaziah assembled the men of Judah and set them by father's houses under commanders of thousands and of hundreds for all Judah and Benjamin. He mustered those 20 years old and upward, and he found that they were 300,000 choice men, fit for war, able to handle spear and shield, but apparently he didn't think this was enough men. He, so he also hired in verse 6, 100,000 mighty men of valor from Israel for 100 talents of silver. 100 talents of silver is about 7,500 pounds, so quite a lot of money that he paid for these mercenaries, and he hired them from Israel, so I know most of you are probably familiar with this, but just in case there's a few people that aren't, it's going to be important to understand this for this morning's sermon. The king we're reading about, Amaziah, is king of the southern nation of Judah. The nation of Israel, the United Nation, experienced a civil war split into a northern and southern kingdom. Amaziah is king of the southern kingdom. And the northern kingdom, because it consisted of 10 of the original 12 tribes, continued to be called Israel. But they started off poorly under a king named Jeroboam who set up these golden calves. So the first king of the northern kingdom put the nation of Israel on a course of idolatry. They never recovered from it. It worsened when uh, Ahab introduced the worship of Baal. And so all you need to know is this. By this point, the northern kingdom of Israel has become an apostate nation, that has turned from God, and God would not want the southern kingdom of Judah having anything to do with them. If you read the previous chapters, you can see how many of Amaziah's fathers or previous kings, like Jehoshaphat, had problems for establishing relationships with the northern kingdom of Israel. And so when Amaziah hires these 100,000 mercenaries from the northern kingdom of Israel, how is God going to view that? Poorly. He's not going to want them dealing with this apostate nation. So look what happens. Verse 7. God sends a prophet, or it says, a man of God comes to Amaziah, and he says, O king, do not let the army of Israel, or these mercenaries from Israel, go with you, for the Lord is not with Israel, with all these Ephraimites. The largest of the ten tribes that made up the northern kingdom of Israel was Ephraim, so sometimes the northern kingdom of Israel was called Ephraim, and then those from the, the northern kingdom of Israel were sometimes called Ephraimites. So God is basically saying through this prophet, have nothing to do with the northern kingdom of Israel. Send these mercenaries home. 
but go act, be strong for the battle. Why should you suppose that God will cast you down before the enemy? Or in other words, God can give you victory because God has power to help or to cast down. Now, here's what's interesting. When Amaziah, I mean, 100,000 soldiers, that's, you know, not insignificant, or that's a significant number. It would have uh, added considerably to his army. If Amaziah had taken these 100,000 mercenaries from Israel, would his, armor, would his army have been stronger or weaker? It would have been weaker. And why is that? Because strength doesn't come from numbers. Strength doesn't come from the size of the army. And it definitely doesn't come from ungodly apostates that you might bring with you. And so, no matter how things might have looked physically, the way for Amaziah to go out to battle or to be strong was to have a much smaller army, but to be doing things the way that God would want him to do those things. You're always going to be stronger when you're in God's will, and you're always going to be weakening yourself, no matter how much bigger or stronger you happen to make your army when you're outside God's will. So it'd be better to have less and do things right with God's help than to have more but do things wrong without God's help. Because look at the end of the verse, it says, God has power to help or to cast down. God is in the business of providing victories regardless of the size of the army. What did Gideon, I mean, God, Gideon starts with ten, you know, thousands of soldiers, and God says there's too many. We need to whittle this down to 300, and then he goes out against 120,000 Midianites, and God gives him that victory. And so God definitely has the power to help with few or with many. I mean, I don't, what is that? What is 300 against 120,000? You know, I can't do the math in my head. But I can tell you that it's great evidence of God's ability to provide victory regardless of how many are on our side or not. There's application for us in the New Testament. 2 Corinthians 6.14, it says, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness, or what fellowship has light with darkness? So one of the lessons we can, because one reason I like to teach on the Old Testament I mean, besides the fact that I just simply enjoy it, <laughs> is I think it can be neglected in Christians' lives because it seems confusing. We could look at this account, for example, or any other kings and say, well, I'm not a king. I don't, hire, I don't go to battle against other nations. I don't hire mercenaries from a kingdom and have to learn not to do that. That's true, but one of the lessons we can learn, so I t- like to teach on the Old Testament so that we can develop this appreciation for it, this love of it, And one of the lessons we can learn from Amaziah is that when we have the potential to do something with ungodly people, God would have us not do that. And it's, I think it's an important thing for us to consider as a church, as churches become more ecumenical, which is kind of a a fancy word for referring to doing things with other churches or being shoulder to shoulder with other churches. God would look at that and he would say that if those if those are not godly people, then you don't want to do anything with them, even if it happens to look like you could be stronger or better because you have their support or their help with you. So Amaziah sends these mercenaries home, or he's going to send them home, but what's going to be his big concern? What's going to be his big concern? He's already paid 7,500 pieces of silver. And so look what he says in verse 9. Amaziah said to the man of God, what shall we do about the hundred talents that I have given to the army of Israel. The man of God answered, the Lord is able to give you much more than this. 
And this is a little bit of a window into his half-hearted devotion to God because the 7,500 pounds of silver, while not insignificant, would have looked very insignificant if what? If Amaziah had a heart committed to God. Because then suddenly, in contrast, between serving God and doing what he wants versus keeping this amount of money, it's going to look like nothing. Now, something interesting happened with me this week as I was studying this. I found myself condemning uh, Amaziah, and, we, and rightly we should. I don't think that it was very reasonable for him to be uh, questioning um, obeying God simply because of some amount of money, so I should bring light to that. But then it occurred to me that soon after, well, let me ask this. Did any, who became a Christian later in life by a show of hands in your 20s or 30s? Okay. No, not many of you. Wow, you're very, you're blessed to have grown up in Christian homes. I became a Christian later in life, and so what that meant for me was I had sadly accumulated plenty of ungodly things (laughs) that had to go. And so I can remember being very convicted about the CDs I had. I was convicted about the movies I had. I was into fitness at that time, and you can imagine that I couldn't keep most of the fitness magazines that I had. There was clothing that I had. And so I needed to get rid of all this, but guess what my big concern was? Well, I've paid so much. What of all the money that I'm going to lose if I get rid of this? And there was even this part of me that thought, well, if I sell it, I'll be a better steward because then I'll get some return from it. But I thought, well, if, if I shouldn't keep it, then I shouldn't be passing it along to someone else too, right? And so we can be like this. We can be like Amaziah. We can look at situations and say, well, what about this money that I'm going to lose? Or I'm going to be out this, or I'm going to be out that. At least that was the case for me. So I want to give you resources. My responsibility as a pastor is to equip you as saints for the work of the ministry. And so sometimes we come across what I consider to be truths that you can take with you to counsel others, to counsel, your, uh, to counsel yourself as well. And this is one of the places when I'm counseling people regarding finances that I regularly bring them. I have found this account to be a wonderful tool for me. I hope that it can be the same for you. And this brings us to lesson two. Wise people trust God with their finances. There is a wonderful financial truth here in these verses. Wise people trust God with their finances. The prophet told Amaziah that God was able to give him much more than he would lose, or God was able to give him much more if he did what was right. And you might at least highlight this verse or circle it or underline it or remember it, because more than likely, as long as you're on this side of heaven, there are going to be times that you are, you are tempted to not be upright with your finances. There are going to be times you're tempted to not do what God wants you to do with your finances, and you're convicted, you're burdened to do something, and you feel your flesh inviting you to do something differently. There will be times that you're talking to people, and you can tell that they're considering doing something with their finances that wouldn't be God's will for them. Go to this verse. Go to verse 9. Read these words where God says, the Lord is able to give you much more than this. The idea is you don't worry about the money. You don't worry about the amount. God is not broke. He has a cattle on a thousand hills. There's no way that God ever sits up in heaven and says, so-and-so honored me with his finances or so-and-so honored me with her finances, and I don't know how I'm going to be able to care for him now. 
or her now. You know, those, he put too much faith in me. She just trusted me too much. What she did with her finances, and now she's in this unfortunate situation because I'm not going to be able to provide for her. God never says that. God is able to give us much more than this, and so don't worry about the money. When you honor God with your money, then you can trust him to honor you in return. In fact, the only way I would say that any of us should really be able to go to bed at night and lay our head on the pillow in peace is when we have taken our finances and put them where? In God's hands, right? And said, this is your money. I'm a steward. This belongs to you. The only way that I can feel good at all about any of the money I have is if I know that I've left it with you and I'm doing what you want to be done with it. If I keep it for myself, if I handle it, if I'm not operating with integrity, I'm not being upright or giving or doing what you would want with my finances, then we really shouldn't have any peace. That's when we should go to bed at night, but actually stay awake because we're so troubled because we've taken our finances out of God's hands and we're, we're keeping it all for ourselves. What does this look like practically? Let's say you're at work and you've got the opportunity to make more money but it involves something immoral or compromising. Maybe it involves being deceitful, or maybe it involves mistreating someone. Maybe it involves um, shortchanging someone, or maybe it involves, you know, stepping on someone's shoulders so that you can advance. Maybe you just want that promotion, but to get that promotion, it means that you've got to put down someone else. You're going to be tempted to not act with integrity. If it's been some sort of business decision, you're going to be tempted to say, I've already invested this much. I don't want to lose what I've already spent. There have already been these expenses. I've already created this partnership. If, if I'm to back out now or if I'm not to do what everyone is pressuring me to do, sometimes it's peer pressure. You just feel people wanting you to do the wrong thing financially. You say, what are they going to think about me? It would be better to suffer loss. It would be better to suffer financial loss. It would be better to suffer loss of relationship. It would be better to lose friends. It would even be better to lose your job. It would be better to lose your job if that was God's will than to keep it if it wasn't God's will. I mean, if you keep your job and that's not the job that God has for you, what are you missing out on? The only way you're going to know is to walk by faith and to be in God's will and allow him to be directing the course of your life. And so sometimes if God has a job for you that he wants to provide, the only way he can do that is when you walk by faith and lose maybe the job that you have <laughs> or, get, or get demoted or go through something difficult so that God can put you where he wants you and give you what he wants to give you. It always means being in a better place when we've suffered loss if it meant being in God's will in the process. Now, to Amaziah's credit, look what he did in verse 10. He discharged the army that had come from Ephraim or from Israel. He sent them home, and they became angry. Just keep this in mind. And they returned home to Israel in fierce anger. Why do you think these mercenaries were angry? We're not told, but we can suspect. They were probably insulted for one, because they had been hired to do something and then they're sent home. What's interesting is maybe they found out why they were sent home. Maybe they found out that God didn't want the southern kingdom of Judah dealing with them because he thought so poorly of them. The other reason that they were upset, probably the more likely reason, is they were anticipating an amount of spoil or plunder from the battle that they're now deprived of. 
And so he sends them home. They go home upset. Keep that in mind. Amaziah goes out to battle without them, and God gives him this great victory. Look at verse 11. Amaziah took courage. He led out his people, and he went to the Valley of Salt. He struck down 10,000 men of Seir, which is another way to refer to the Edomites. And the men of Judah captured another 10,000 alive of the Edomites, took them to the top of a rock, and threw them down, these 10,000 men from the top of this rock, and all these men were dashed to pieces. The Bible doesn't provide commentary on this, but it was a common form of execution among pagans. And I'll just say, when you're doing what pagans are doing, that's a pretty good indication you're doing something you shouldn't be doing. And so while the Bible is silent, I would say that this is evidence of one of the big problems that ruined Amaziah's life. You're starting to see one of the symptoms associated with what has happened to him following this victory, which is pride. And just keep this in mind now, because we're going to see that this is what ruins his reign and largely ruins his kingdom and definitely ruins the rest of his life. Pride comes into his heart, and you start to see it through the way that he treats his enemies right here. Verse 13, the men of the army, so those mercenaries whom Amaziah sent back, not letting them go with him to battle, they raided the cities of Judah from Samaria to Beth Horon, and they struck down 3,000 people in them, and they took much spoil. Okay, now let me explain this. I don't know if that sounds confusing, but just give me your attention for a moment so I can make this clear. Amaziah is king of the southern kingdom of Judah. He hired mercenaries from the northern kingdom of Israel. He sent those mercenaries home. They had come down to the south. And when they returned to the north, they had to walk back through the southern kingdom of Judah to get home to Israel. And as they did, what did they do with all of the towns and villages that they passed? They basically did to those towns and villages what they would have done if they had went to battle. They raised them, they pillaged them. In other words, it's like, you're going to send us home. You're not going to let us go to battle with you. We're going to miss out on this plunder. Fine, we're going to end up taking it from your cities because of the trouble of having to walk all the way down here when we return back to Israel. So they take 3,000 people or kill 3,000 people. They destroy these cities. They take all this wealth. And so you get to see why God did not want Amaziah or the Jews working with these mercenaries because they were so ungodly. And this brings up an interesting situation for us to learn from. I just want to ask you to do something for a moment. Put yourself in Amaziah's place. A prophet comes to you and tells you to send these mercenaries home. You have spent 7,500 pounds of silver, but you send them home anyway, which is to say you're obedient. And when you're obedient, what happens? Good things right? Isn't this what we think? We, we're, we're good and good things happen to us. We obey and we're blessed, right? That's not what happened to Amaziah. This brings us to lesson three. Prosperity and suffering are not always evidence of obedience. Prosperity and suffering are not always evidence of obedience. So if I'm Amaziah, at best, I'm probably confused. At worst, I'm angry. At best, I'm confused because I'm saying, God, you told me to send the mercenaries home, which I did and lost all this money, and they ripped up my nation. At worst, he could have been angry and said, why did I obey you and suffer? If you remember, you don't have to turn there, but take your minds back to when we read about Asa, king of Judah. 
back in chapter 16. Asa looked to Syria to help him in battle, kind of like Amaziah just looked to Israel. Asa looked to Syria for help instead of looking to God. Asa should not have done this. This was a sinful, compromising decision on Asa's part. He gets the Syrians to help him, and then Asa goes out to battle, and what happened? He won. He got a great victory. And that doesn't make sense to us either, does it? Because when you do something bad, bad things should happen, right? If you do something sinful, you should suffer. Well, now we've seen both sides of this, haven't we? You can obey, and you can suffer, and you can disobey, and then good things can happen. And I stress this because we tend to think that if I do what's right, my life will be good. And if people do things that are bad, then their lives are going to be bad. But the problem is you can look around and you can see people that are doing bad things and what? You could, if you're honest, be jealous because of how good their lives look. You can read in the Old Testament whether it's Job talking to his friends, whether it's Habakkuk's complaints, whether it's uh, Asaph's complaints, I think it's in Psalm 73, they're struggling because of the prosperity of the wicked. They struggled because of the prosperity of the wicked. And so this is an important thing for us to remember that prosperity and suffering are not always evidence of obedience. We tend to think obeying God means good things happen, but sometimes bad things happen. And we tend to think that disobeying God means bad things happen, but then sometimes we'll see good things happen. What's the, what is the test of obedience? It is the only test. What God's word says about it. That's it. Not any outcome, not any result. The only test is whether it agrees with God's word. And if it doesn't, it doesn't matter what happens as a result. I mean, how many times have you talked to people, they're doing something sinful, and they're inclined not to repent because they're not suffering terribly. You're talking to them and you're saying, you shouldn't be doing this, this is not right, whatever it is, living with this person or the, this behavior, these actions, and their response is, well, if God was really upset with me, then I wouldn't be doing so well right now. If God was really displeased with me, wouldn't he strike me down right now or wouldn't something terrible happen? No, not necessarily. He can be very gracious while he gives us time to repent. But here's another thing that's interesting with Amaziah. It would be equally true to say that he suffered because he disobeyed God. None of this would have happened if he hadn't done what in the first place? Compromised and hired these mercenaries. Typically, if we obey, and here's, here's the point, and just give me your attention and hear me when I say this. If we obey before we run into disobedience, often we can avoid a considerable amount of trouble. If we disobey and then we repent, there are often painful consequences. And I just stress that because way too often we associate forgiveness with the absence of consequences. We just think, well, if God forgives me, then that means I won't be punished or disciplined for what I've done. And that's just not true. There are people that sin and they're completely forgiven. They're growing in their sanctification. They're becoming more like Christ every day. They're looking forward to eternity with the Lord, and they still have to live with the consequences of those sins for the rest of their lives. 
And so for, eight, for, for Amaziah here, it would have been better. Yes, he had to suffer. It would have been better if he hadn't hired these mercenaries in the first place because then he paid a pretty serious toll for that when his nation was ripped up by them. Now watch him do something unbelievably foolish. Verse 14, it says, Amaziah came from striking down the Edomites. He brought the gods. This is astonishing. He defeats the Edomites, and then he brings their idols, the gods of the men of Seir, or the gods of the Edomites, and he sets them up as his gods, and he worships them. He makes offerings to them. Verse 15, therefore the Lord was angry with Amaziah and sent to him a prophet who said to him, very logically, why have you sought the gods of a people who could not even deliver their own people from your hand? Let me back up a little bit and get some momentum into this. Amaziah, you remember when I said that Solomon was much better or much worse after he got wisdom? It depends how you want to look at it. He was much better before he got wisdom or he was much worse after he got wisdom because he failed to apply it. Amaziah was much better before he had this victory. He was a much better king before he had this victory. A Scottish minister named Andrew Bonar, he said, let us be as watchful after the victory as before the battle. Why did he say that? Why do we have to be as watchful after the, after the battle as before it? What, where, what are we typically like before the big battle? If we're going to face something difficult, we're on our knees, we're in the Word, we're memorizing scripture, we're meditating on it, we're asking people to pray for us, we're looking up to God for help, we're completely dependent on him. We go through the battle, we get the victory, and then we're in a dangerous position. We're in danger of not depending on God any longer, and maybe even as bad, we're in danger of pride. And that's exactly what happened here with Amaziah. You could argue that we have to be more watchful after the victory than before because of how tempted we are not to depend on God after he's allowed us to receive what we want. Amaziah was a much better king before the battle than after. So God gives Amaziah a great victory, gives him the Edomites, they lived, I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on this, but they, they were a mountain people. They lived in a mountain. They, they were viewed as being invincible. Nobody could defeat them, even though they were a small enemy. So God gives them this great victory over a very difficult enemy in a very difficult place. And sadly, Amaziah responds to God's goodness by taking the idols of the Edomites and worshiping them. And so the prophet asks this very reasonable question, why would you worship the false gods of the people that couldn't even deliver the people that you just defeated? I mean, if there were any idols you're not going to worship, wouldn't it be the idols that can't even deliver the people that were worshiping them? It was absolutely foolish what he did here. As terrible as Amaziah's actions were, I do think there's a way that we can do this. If you're honest, if we're honest, I would venture to say that most of the sins we commit, we have seen them cause problems in other people's lives first. You have committed sins after you have watched those sins cause people problems. In other words, you've watched those sins or those idols 
not be able to help those people and then you took those sins and you introduced them into your life i've done the same thing the sins i've committed i have seen them plague people i have seen them cause people problems i have seen those sins be unable to help others just like the gods of the edomites couldn't help them and then i have brought those sins or those idols into my life and worship them and sacrifice to them lying anger bitterness drunkenness pornography unforgiveness covetousness and the list could go on they all ruin lives they ruin marriages they ruin relationships they ruin families we see it happen and then we bring those sins into our lives thinking that they're not going to cause us any problems and so what god said to amaziah through the prophet it's exactly what he could say to us these sins did not help the people who committed them why would you let them in your life and i think it's i think it's pride the same thing with amaziah this is what we think he couldn't get away with it or she couldn't i'm stronger than them i am better than them they had problems doing that i will not have problems doing that i can control it i can keep it in moderation it is not going to plague me like it plagued them yeah they struggle but they're a lot weaker than me they're not as smart as me they're not as mature as me they don't know the word as well as i do so of course they had problems with those things but when i do them i'm not going to have problems and that is pride and that is exactly what came into amaziah's heart and can come into ours when amaziah took these idols it was a symptom of that pride from that victory that he experienced we talked recently it's worth repeating because it's been such a theme with these kings that one of the real dangers of success or prosperity is pride sometimes one of god's greatest graces is letting us or causing us to fail sometimes one of god's greatest graces is preventing us from experiencing success because he knows what problems it's going to cause for us few things can provide maturity and humility and sanctification as much as failure can it causes us to have to look to god in prayer it causes it humbles us it, it removes pride and selfishness from our lives but success i mean as much as we crave it can be one of the most devastating things for people and amaziah is a great example of that as were many of the other kings when did uzziah go into the temple to offer the incense why was his heart proud and lifted up because he had experienced so much success and prosperity as a king before that and the same with the other kings that we've read about josephus was a jewish historian he provided some of the most important uh, writings oh if you never heard of josephus he's a really important man because he wasn't a christian that sounds odd doesn't it but it's true because nobody's going to look at his writings and say that he was biased he was a jewish historian who provides us with these wonderful writings about old testament individuals and nobody says it's because he's trying to make christ look good and this is so it gives him this credibility and josephus said upon the victory which amaziah had gotten and the great acts that he had done amaziah was puffed up and he began to overlook god who had given him the victory and this brings us to lesson four pride blinds us to part one correction pride blinds us to correction
Look how Amaziah responded to the prophet that confronted him. Verse 16, it says, As the prophet was speaking, which means Amaziah interrupted him, the king said to him, Have we made you a royal counselor? Stop or be quiet. Why should you be struck down? So the prophet stopped, but he didn't stop for very long because then he said, I know that God has determined to destroy you because you have done this and you have not listened to my counsel. So what did Amaziah basically say to him? He said, who put you in charge? You better be quiet before I kill you. And was this prophet brave? I think he was brave. I probably would have stopped talking at that point. (laughs) But he still said to him, (laughs) he still said to him, I mean, my impression, because Amaziah interrupted him, was the prophet had more to say. So he did stop the whole prophecy he had, but he still made sure to eke out, God is going to destroy you for this. So Amaziah thought he was silencing the prophet, but who was he really silencing? He was silencing God. And one of the lessons for us, no, prophets don't come and speak to us, but I will say this. If someone comes to you with the word of God, with the word of God, and they tell you what God's word says, and you don't want to hear it, or you silence them, you're not silencing them. You're silencing God. Anytime someone comes to talk to us, and I'm not saying we're not discerning, we don't consider whether something is really from God or not, but if someone's coming and they're telling you what God's word says, it's as though God himself is speaking to you. And for us to silence those people that God might be using to share his word with us is to, is to try to silence God himself and to put us in a very dangerous position, very much like Amaziah did here. Last week, we talked about Proverbs 16, 18. Pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. Amaziah's pride led to his destruction and fall. Many verses about the dangers of failing to respond well to correction. Here's just three of them, Proverbs 13, 18. Poverty and disgrace come to him who ignores instruction. Proverbs 15, 10, there's severe discipline for him who forsakes the way. Whoever hates reproof will die. Proverbs 29, 1, he who is often reproved or corrected, yet stiffens the neck, will suddenly be broken beyond healing. And one of the things that characterizes these kings is their inability or their failure to receive correction. One of the, what is one of the best remedies for pride? It's being rebuked. It's receiving correction. One of the remedies, one of the best remedies for pride is being rebuked and listening and not making excuses, not shifting blame, not turning the tables and attacking the person confronting us. You can almost always be certain, or we can almost always be certain that we are responding in pride when we say, yeah, well, you, right? Why do we do that? We're just trying to turn the tables, make it about that person, attack that person. One of the best ways to have pride in our flesh crucified is to receive correction well and to say, thank you for telling me. I appreciate you caring enough about me to come and share this. If we have, if we have um, offended or hurt that person, to ask them for forgiveness and say, please forgive me for having done that. It does wonders for our flesh. It does, it's spiritual weightlifting. It does wonders to destroy pride from our lives. Amaziah is the seventh example we've looked at. And I don't expect you to remember everything we've talked about up to that point, up to this point on these kings, but I do want to invite you to remember this. Most of these kings, and especially the ones we've looked at recently, Asa, Joash, Uzziah, and now Amaziah, they were all rebuked. 
They were all rebuked and they all failed to respond well. And why am I stressing that? Because they finished poorly and much of their much of them finishing poorly is a result or is directly related to their pride or their failure to, res- to respond to correction. This is how it looks to me. And I would invite you to see it this way too because I'm pretty certain this is the case. <laughs> when God looks kind of harsh because he's sending a prophet to confront them, it's the opposite of the way it looks. A prophet goes and rebukes the king and you say, man, God's, God is being angry, you know, and he's being kind of cruel. No. God is being gracious because a king is about to ruin his life and God is reaching out to deliver him or to save him. But the king responds poorly. And that's why he ends up finishing poorly too. So God was gracious to all. And I just see, I see God's faithfulness and I want you to see it. I see God's faithfulness with each of these kings that started well and finished poorly. He was faithful in that he reached out to save all of them and deliver all of them from the end that they ended up meeting if they had just listened to the prophets that he sent. Something else we can learn from Amaziah is that pride is never something that affects only one area of our life. You can never be proud and have it only affect your job or only affect your marriage or only affect your parenting or if you're a child, only affect your relationship with your parents or only affect your relationship with your neighbors or only affect your church family. Pride is something, the tentacles, they reach out to every area of our life. And so when we're proud, which we see here with Amaziah, it's going to affect pretty much everything we do. And that's what happened to him. Look at this, because now, after he pridefully responds to the prophet in verse 17, he pridefully picks a fight with a nation that's going to beat him up. Verse 17, Amaziah, king of Judah, took counsel, and he sent to Joash, or pause, let me get your attention real quick. (laughs) One of the reasons kings and chronicles can be kind of confusing is that kings had the same name, and sometimes they lived around the same time. Amaziah's father was who? Joash. Well, right now, Amaziah is talking to Joash, not his father that was killed, but Joash that's king of the northern kingdom of Israel. You just got to keep that in mind, so, you're, so if you mix it up, obviously that'll lead to considerable confusion. So right now, Amaziah is talking to the king of the northern kingdom of Israel, who happens to have the same name as his father, Joash. Okay, with that in mind, look back at 17. Amaziah, king of Judah, took counsel. He sent to Joash, the son of Jehoahaz, son of Jehu, the king of Israel, and he said to Joash, come, let us look one another in the face. And Joash, the king of Israel, sent word to Amaziah, king of Judah, and this is like Old Testament trash talking right here. He says, a thistle in Lebanon, and what is a thistle? A thistle is like an irritating and worthless plant, right? A thistle in Lebanon, which is supposed to be Amaziah, sends to a cedar, what's a cedar? A powerful, majestic tree, right? Sends to a cedar in Lebanon, which is supposed to be um, Joash, and says, give your daughter to my son for a wife. So Amaziah tried, keep this in mind, tried to marry Joash's daughter to establish an alliance between their nations, which shows how far he has, drawn, has, has turned from the Lord because now he's even trying to establish an alliance with the northern kingdom of Israel. And a wild beast of Lebanon passed by and trampled 
the thistle, which is Joash's way of saying this is what's going to happen to Amaziah, or happen to you if you go out to battle against me, I'm going to trample on you. Verse 19, you say, see, I have struck down Edom, and your heart has lifted you up in boastfulness. So even Joash, I don't want to spend a lot of time telling you about him, but he is an ungodly man. Even an ungodly evil king of the northern apostate king of Israel could look at Amaziah and see what? That he's a proud man. Isn't that bad when God's people are rebuked by evil people? That's what happens. This is like when Pharaoh rebuked Abraham. You've got a pagan or an unbeliever rebuking one of God's people. Even Joash, an evil man, could look at Amaziah and say, just stop while you're ahead. You had a victory over the Edomites, and now you're proud. Just go home before I beat you up. But you're lifted up. You're, you're prideful now, and you're going to get destroyed. And, all, and look, he says, stay at home. Why should you provoke trouble so that you fall, you and Judah, your nation, with you? Because he knew the whole nation was going to suffer. And this brings us to lesson four. Pride blinds us to part two reality. Pride blinds us to part two reality. So here's what happened with Amaziah. Amaziah defeated the Edomites, so now he thinks he can defeat the Israelites. But let me ask this. Did Amaziah really defeat the Edomites? Who defeated the Edomites? God defeated the Edomites. He happened to use Amaziah to do that, but Amaziah didn't defeat the Edomites any more than we defeated the Edomites. But he takes credit for this victory. He's proud. Now he thinks he can defeat Israel. There's probably two reasons. And you say, well, why does Amaziah want to fight Israel? There's probably two reasons he wanted to fight Israel. One reason is the mercenaries that just tore up his nation were from Israel, and he's reeling from that. And the second reason is, apparently, we don't have a record of when it happened, Amaziah tried to marry Joash's daughter, and Joash denied him. And I mention that because that tells you that, Joe, that Amaziah saw himself and Joash as equals, and Joash didn't see it that way. In other words, Amaziah overestimated himself. How embarrassing is that when you go to another nation because you think you can have an alliance and the nation kind of shoos you away because you're small and you're a thistle and you're irritating and worthless? Why would he think that, though? Because he's so proud. And this is one of those interesting times in Scripture where we see a believer looking bad with an un- God using an unbeliever to try to straighten him out. And the main thing I want you to notice is Amaziah was blind to the reality of the situation. He's blind in that it's like he thinks he's a cedar and he doesn't know he's a thistle. He thinks he can marry Joash's daughter. You know, she's a 10, he's a 5. He thinks he can defeat Joash in battle. And he doesn't know that Joash is going to come out and trample him. And so he just had no real awareness or understanding of his circumstances. But that's what, that's what pride does. Warren Wearsby said pride, it blinds the mind. It distorts the vision. It inflates the ego so that the person cannot tell truth from fiction. And then look at the next verse. Amaziah would not listen in verse 20. For it was of God in order that God might give them into the hand of their enemies because they had sought the gods of the Edomites. And so the prophet's words to 
Amaziah were true, that God's going to destroy him. But in a sense, this is interesting. How did God destroy Amaziah? By just turning Amaziah over to himself. One of the strongest ways for God to judge us is to simply allow us to do what we want and to not restrain us. For his grace to be lifted from our lives, the grace that would restrain us from making terrible decisions. So in this odd twist of fate, Amaziah defeated the Edomites, but it's almost like the Edomites defeated Amaziah when he started worshiping their idols. Now, the next few verses, I'm going to read through them quickly. I just want you to be able to look for this. They record one of the most humiliating records of someone in Scripture. The, it is absolutely disastrous what Amaziah ends up experiencing because of his pride. And I just want you to keep that in mind. As we read about the, the horrific punishment that comes against Amaziah, just keep in mind that he, endu- he experiences all of this because of his pride. Verse 21, Joash, king of Israel, went up, and he and Amaziah, king of Judah, faced one another in battle at Beth Shemosh, which belongs to Judah. So they even fought on Amaziah's territory in the southern kingdom. And Judah, or Amaziah, was defeated by Israel, or by Joash, and every man fled to his home. Verse 23, Joash, the king of Israel, captured Amaziah, the king of Judah, the son of Joash, son of Ahaziah, at Beth Shemesh, and he brought, so Joash brings Amaziah, it's like he grabs him by the neck and he just drags him down to Jerusalem. He breaks down the wall of Jerusalem for 400 cubits from the Ephraim gate to the corner gate. And then Joash seized all the gold and silver and all the vessels that were found in the house of gold in the care of Obed-Edom. He seized also the treasuries of the king's house, also hostages, and he returned to Samaria. So just look at how far he's fallen. Appreciate this. He starts off, he's a victor over the Edomites, and now he is a captive to the Israelites. He's forced into bondage. He's forced to see his city's defenses weaken when the wall is breaking down. Everyone's vulnerable now. He's forced to watch his people become captives. He's forced to watch his nation's wealth taken and wealth from his own palace. And it gets worse. Verse 25, Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, he lived 15 years after the death of Joash, the son of Jehoahaz, king of Israel. The rest of his deeds, in verse 26, first to last, are written in the book of the kings of Judah and Israel, which would be first and second kings in our Bibles. Verse 27, from the time when Amaziah turned away from the Lord, his people made a conspiracy against him in Jerusalem. So his own people turned against him, and he fled to Lachish to get away from them. But his people sent after him to Lachish, and they put him to death there. Does this sound familiar? Amaziah's people chase him down and kill him. Who, do, who does that sound like? That's exactly what happened to his father Joash. The people were furious with him. This humiliating defeat where the city's destroyed, the wealth is taken, a foreign king captures some of them or captures their friends or their family was so disastrous and embarrassing that the nation turns against him and ends up executing him. He flees from Jerusalem to Lachish. They follow him there. He can't get away, and then he ends up getting murdered at the hands of his own people. And so his pride literally ruined his life. He stands as one of the strongest warnings of the danger of it in all of Scripture. This is the last king who failed to apply wisdom, or the last king who failed to finish well. 
And so I want to close, I don't want to close just this sermon, but I want to close this little um, mini-series within a series about finishing well by getting you to look at the end of verse 9. Look at the end of verse 9 with me. The Lord is able to give you much more than this. The Lord is able to give... That was what the prophet said to Amaziah to get him to do what's right. What do you guys think about the prophet saying that to him? I don't like it. I just didn't like this part of the passage. And this is why. When when I look at this, it looks like the prophet is saying, do what's right for what reason? You'll get more or rewarded in the end. I mean, that goes against something I talked about earlier in the sermon, that you could do what's right and then suffer. So I don't like this. The prophet says, do what's right because you'll end up with more in the end. We don't, we don't do what's right because we're going to get more in the end because we might not get more in the end. We might do what's right and then suffer. We do what's right for what reason? Because that's what God wants. We're disciples of Christ, and we want to obey him regardless of the outcome. But here's what's interesting. What this prophet says to Amaziah, it's basically what God says to us. This is basically the appeal that God makes to us. The prophet asks Amaziah to sacrifice, but he says you're going to get a lot more in return. That's the invitation given to you through the gospel. Does Jesus ask you to sacrifice a lot? Luke 9, 23, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. You're asked, or we're asked, to give up more than Amaziah's. I mean, what was Amaziah asked to give up? Some money. We're asked to give up our lives. I look at what Amaziah had to give up, and I'd say, that'd be a lot easier than what Jesus asked us to give up. But he offers what in return? God entices us Or he tells us, this is what you can have. 1 Corinthians 2 and I, it's written, No eye has seen, no ear has heard. It hasn't even entered the heart of man. Man hasn't even imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. Ephesians 3.20, To him who was able to do far more abundantly than all that we could ask or think according to the power at work within us. And so God says, yeah, there's, it's a sacrifice. There's a lot I expect for those who follow me, but I'm offering more in return than you can even imagine. Sacrifice this, give this up, but I'll give you more than you can even fathom in return. And I wanted to conclude with this because wisdom is applying the knowledge we have. Wisdom is applying the knowledge we have and keeping this in mind, this truth or reality that, yes, God asks us of this, but he has so much more in store for us in return— is one of the best ways for us to finish well. Father, we thank you that even though there's asked of us to pick up our cross daily, to sacrifice as, as we live for Christ, I pray that we would keep in mind what is, what is extended to us in return. I pray that we would keep in mind the exceeding abundance that you give to those who follow you. It's one of the wonderful motivations for us to finish well, Lord, to just keep the end in mind, not be living for the temporary, the physical, but to be living for the eternal and the heavenly and the spiritual. 
uh, as Hebrews 12, 2 says, to ha- have our eyes fixed on Christ and what he has done, to not be looking at our circumstances. And so I pray for that, Lord, that by the power of the gospel at work in our hearts and lives, we can finish well, and that we would be encouraged to do so by keeping in mind what you offer for those who follow you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.